May we have your attention, please? In June 2019, the government passed legislation that means the UK economy must achieve net zero carbon emissions by 2050. The Scottish Government has independently committed to do so by 2045. Transport is the UK's largest contributor to carbon emissions, and while rail is a relatively small part of the problem, it's seen as a big part of the solution. Rail only produces about 1.4% of transport emissions. That's about one half of 1% of all the UK's carbon emissions. The UK government sees rail as an integral part of a low-carbon, end-to-end transport system and a crucial part of the UK's plan to reach net zero. Obviously, figures will vary by scenario, but per passenger kilometre, rail emits three to five times less carbon than driving and about six times less than flying. And while most freight trains are still hauled by diesel-powered locomotives, each one can take as many as 70 HGVs off the roads. Looking at those figures from the other side, traction energy accounts for about 30% of the rail network's carbon emissions, and 65% of that comes from diesel emissions. So decarbonising, or rather de-dieseling, will be an essential part of achieving net zero rail journeys. Electrification is the only current viable solution to long-distance and passenger travel and freight services. With the current cost of installing electrification, it's almost inevitable that some diesel traction will still be needed beyond 2050. To discuss all of this and some of the challenges the rail industry faces, I'm joined today by George Davis, Director of Sustainable Development at RSSB, and Martin Watt, Counsel at global law firm Denton's. Welcome to you both. Martin, as the one that's new to the RSSB podcast, could I first ask you to introduce yourself and tell us what your role is in delivering decarbonisation? Well, thank you very much and thank you for inviting me to join you today. I'm pleased to be here. I'm Martin Watt, a lawyer at Denton's. We've got a large rail team in London that works with UK and international rail clients, and we've been involved in rail in the UK since privatisation. We work with all parts of the industry, infrastructure managers, passenger operators, freight operators, equipment manufacturers, the public sector, and others. At Denton's, we work with industry parties in developing ways to put their decarbonisation goals into practice, helping them to structure commercial arrangements, overcome regulatory hurdles, and get the necessary finance in place. And we've been involved in projects across all emissions scopes. So, you know, scope one, the emissions that you generate. We've worked with a train operator interested in lowering in lower carbon rolling stock to analyse the impact on performance regimes coming from the duty cycles of low carbon traction. Scope two, those are the emissions, for example, from traction and electricity. We've helped set up a solar project on railway land And among other things, it had to be structured in a way that enabled external investment and to overcome complex regulatory hurdles relating to electricity supply. And scope three, our ESG team regularly help clients evaluate their supply chain contracts and practices. At Denton's, we've got rail infrastructure and energy experts working closely together, which is particularly suited to decarbonisation projects, which often draw on all of these disciplines. Thank you very much, Martin. In this episode, I'm going to ask a few questions and leave you and George to discuss each topic. So, 
Can I start the proceedings with looking at where the rail industry is now? George, as you're on the inside, could you start the conversation? Yeah, very happy to do that. And and really good to have the conversation today with Martin. So in terms of the challenges, I think, you know, it's worth repeating your point from the intro, Ant. We're starting in a really strong position. Our industry is inherently more sustainable than others uh, for long distance freight and passenger travel. You know, there isn't any mode that's um, as well performing at the moment, even if that travel is being facilitated by diesel traction. So we're in a good position, but we mustn't be complacent. And we're not, you know, the industry is thinking very hard about where it goes next. But I think the challenge therein around fleets is the long lead time. Replacing the vehicles that we have today will take many years and we shouldn't be replacing vehicles that are perfectly serviceable and offering a good experience both to passenger as well as freight. So we've got to be very careful about how we direct investment. And I think that the way that we've invested recently is positive in that we've got now a very large fleet of intercity bi-mode trains, which are capable of running on electricity as well as diesel where electricity isn't available overhead. And it's also really exciting to see the first of the Class 93 freight locomotives. Now, the Class 93 is a, is a tri-mode locomotive, which means it can haul freight powered conventionally by diesel, but also using overhead power as well as battery. So, I mean, that's a really strong innovation and great to see the investment that the Rail Operations Group have made in that particular freight locomotive. So there's big decisions that need to be made about future rail rolling stock and vehicles, particularly to tackle traction uh, decarbonisation. And as you said, I think Ant, the electrification of the railway is the ideal solution to decarbonise long distance. And we know that there are schemes which are effectively no regrets, plugging short distances where there aren't currently electrified lines to make much longer journeys possible on fully electrified routes. There's also the option, as, as I've mentioned, in terms of batteries. So how might batteries play a part? At RSSB, we're working on looking at standards for battery charging and, and making sure that we can accommodate the increasing likelihood that batteries will become a big part of future traction, particularly in the passenger space. Hydrogen is also being looked at, and we know that there are very significant investments being made in prototypes for hydrogen traction that works in the UK. It is already proven overseas, but we do have a a railway that's got its own particular requirements and engaging aspects, particularly making hydrogen somewhat more difficult to introduce, but we think it will play a part. So it's exciting. Sustainable alternative fuels is another thing worth mentioning, and I'm sure Martin will speak to this as well. By that, I mean drop-in liquids that can be replacing diesel. So moving away from fossil diesel, using synthetic diesels, whether they be e-diesel as it's known, or alternatives generated by biomass. Now, we need to be careful there. Clearly, there's a risk of, of good land for human production of food being taken out of use for fuels for transport. So we need to be careful about the provenance of the fuel, but it definitely will need to play a part because, as I've said, you know, if these internal combustion engines are still viable and are capable of moving people and goods around the country, then we should be using them but dropping in a different type of fuel if we can confirm the, the supply. A lot going on across that fleet challenge. No, and I mean, as you say, electrification has got to be the preferred solution and certainly that's that was at the heart of the transport network decarbonisation study we can't be sure but we can perhaps anticipate that it may be difficult in current circumstances to you know fully realise the electrification plans that that envisaged so as you say maybe we do need to look to other solutions maybe alternative fuels need to play a bigger role than we previously envisaged there are lots of developments going on there both with biofuels as you, as you mentioned 
And in fact, biofuel, biofuel already has something of a track record in rail. Certainly, there's been various experiments with it. But we've seen less of the synthetic fuels that you mentioned, the so-called power to X, where you effectively manufacture fossil fuels. I mean, it's not carbon-free, but it's carbon-reduced and could be part of the picture. Clearly, there are all sorts of challenges in making that work, and there may need to be infrastructure developments and other commercial arrangements created to really make it viable as a long-term solution. RSSB have also identified renewable electricity as an important part of the picture of a way of you know, ensuring that rail can move forward with decarbonisation. And of course, adequate power supply is a key enabler of future electrification as well. So one of the ways that companies can achieve this is by entering into a green PPA under which a power project sells green electricity to the company. It's a way of guaranteeing the electricity it's using has been generated using low carbon methods. And certainly we've worked on you know a number of projects in that space and uh, we see a lot of activity in other sectors. And it's important for rail to keep abreast of the rapid developments in other areas that can facilitate developments in rail. You know, just as three examples, HMG is rapidly developing and rolling out a subsidy model for low carbon hydrogen production that you know, may well be directly relevant to the rollout of hydrogen traction. The market for industrial batteries is rapidly evolving and may be an important tool for rail electrification as we go forward. And at the same time, there are regulatory developments relating to the recycling of batteries that, need, that rail just needs to take account of. It's also worth mentioning the opportunities that rail has to exploit the rail estate. And we've worked on various projects in this space. But for example, in one case, we worked on a deal under which an energy company installed solar panels on a depot roof, which is expected to save a lot of carbon per year, some 44 tonnes. And some of the electricity will power the depot and some of it will be sold to local businesses. So it's, it's a really important way of generating extra income from the rail estate, but also reducing the carbon footprint of its energy. We've been seeing that over time, companies in other sectors have become quite sophisticated in their knowledge of how the energy sector works. You know, for example, we've seen retailers becoming quite sophisticated in their energy projects and, you know, using rooftop solar and with PPAs, as I've mentioned, and so on. So, you know, clearly it may well be worth rail looking around at what other people are doing as well and taking advantage of some of those ideas. Thank you very much for that, Martin. You've just mentioned that you've worked with other companies in a variety of industries. What do you think rail can learn from those other industries? Well, you know, in our work across various sectors, we're seeing developments and approaches that rail might be able to use. To take the challenge of diesel ICE emissions again, you could in a sense see there being a suite of options available, you know, including do nothing, just continue to use it or conversion to LPG or use alternative fuels as we discussed, you know, switching to battery EVs, switching to hydrogen fuel cells, producing your own hydrogen or switch to hydrogen fuel cells and buy their in the hydrogen. Or you might even develop hydrogen combustion technology. And in fact, we're even seeing proposals for the use of ammonia combustion, certainly in other industries. I'm not sure whether anyone in rail is looking at that. But across all of those options, we're seeing various configurations of them in other industries, often accompanied by innovative commercial arrangements or you know, industry consortia being formed or joint venturing to sponsor the necessary technological developments. And it's just always worth thinking, well, are we doing enough of that in rail? And is there anything that we can learn from those other sectors? You know, in battery technology, for example, the automotive industry has made substantial advancements 
in battery technology for EVs and rail operators might want to explore the use of advanced battery systems for powertrains. I read recently about a, in the mining sector, a major mining investor partnering up with a UK entity that's sprung out of the Formula One industry on bespoke batteries for the use in mining, large mining haul trucks. Are there any similar th- sort of things that can happen in rail? So there's so much that can be done and perhaps lots to learn. Yeah, that's absolutely right, Martin. I think we also need to be conscious of how those innovations will need to be brought to market. So making sure we bring, we open rather, the railway in a legislative and reformed way to those sorts of partners coming in and helping us because we will need significant help. I think the other thing to just introduce here is the non-traction decarbonisation opportunities that rail presents. And by that, I mean the fact, as, as Ant said in the introduction, the railway is a huge part potentially of the solution to a net zero transport network in the country, in the UK. So we need to get more people and more goods onto our railway. And there's a whole range of technologies in the context of mobility as a service. By that, I mean the way in which rail needs to be closer to other mobility providers, the likes of the technology companies. I won't name them, but I'm sure you can imagine who I'm referencing. And and those organizations are very capable of bringing some really useful technologies for retailing and highlighting where the rail service is a viable option for people who at the moment perhaps don't think to jump on a train. So that's definitely an area of, of opportunity. And more broadly, I think, you know, the system optimization, so making better use of our systems in the railway has to be a big part of it as well. So we have a capacity on the railway that is not fully being utilised in many locations. So how do we get more trains serving more routes? It obviously has to be a viable proposition on the economic level. But I think there's things like digital signalling and the way in which the drivers of the trains around the network today need to be better connected so that they can make better decisions about how they operate and reduce the need for braking and acceleration. So making the journey wherever possible, as fuel efficient, will also help that decarbonisation challenge. So a whole host of things there in that sort of technology. And as I say, the optimising of the railway, both in terms of mechanical optimization as well as sort of non-mechanical process and, and retailing. Yeah, I mean, I'd like to just emphasise, I thoroughly agree with you know what you're saying, George, and, and the point you make about not focusing only on traction, of course, is absolutely crucial. You know, it's been estimated that suppliers generate about two-thirds of a railway's emissions. So clearly, looking at managing supply chains is absolutely crucial, and I'm sure rail industry participants are doing this already, but it's certainly an area that we look at a lot, and it's important to be looking at your supply chain contracts and how you're procuring goods and services and developing a procurement policy that takes your climate change ambitions into account. And that has challenges, but it is obviously a great opportunity as well. George, you mentioned a little while ago, braking and acceleration. And of course, they happen as you go into and out of stations where diesel engine locomotives are known to sit for quite some time, adding both nitrogen oxide and particulate matter to the atmosphere. So I know that the government is looking at the moment at air quality on a local basis. What are we doing in terms of that? Thank you, Anne. I'll summarise the active programme of work that RSSB is leading, working with the industry on behalf of the Department for Transport. So there's clearly been a lot of progress made in urban areas throughout the country on air quality, and that's absolutely right. We need to make sure that the the air we breathe as citizens and also as obviously colleagues and, and employees 
throughout the railway is good and it is of a good quality. So we have established a network. So RSSB has established a network of air quality monitors that are now up and running. And we're gathering data on air quality in a number of stations, actually in excess of 70 odd stations now are part of the network. And that is telling us the information we need to be able to inform the industry's deployment and investment in rolling stock. Ultimately, what we're dealing with here is, as you say, emissions from combustion primarily of diesel, but there's also the emissions associated with what we call friction and the braking systems, particularly of trains, can give rise to to emissions that need to be managed. And there is a lot going on in this space, as I've said. So um, responding to the information that we're providing as the sort of the industry's research leads in this world, but we're also focused in on advising on the mitigations. And one of the big mitigation opportunities we have is in the world of alternative modes of operation of trains. And it's great to see actually the work that's been going for some months now, looking at batteries, replacing one of the diesel engines on a Hitachi Class 800 with a battery set. And that enables where the air quality is of concern in locations, enables the train to potentially flip to a zero emission operation and not add to poor air quality in a particular location. So that sort of thing will need to be invested in and need to be coming through if we're to make sure that rail, as the rest of the industrial sector is is playing its part, rail needs to contribute in cleaning up the air that we breathe. Thank you, George. Martin, I know that, as I said, there are legal requirements. What is the regulatory landscape going to look like for emissions in the near future? Well, the Environment Act in 2021 created an obligation on the Secretary of State to set targets for particulates in ambient. And I think we can expect that to filter down into various air quality requirements and monitoring targets. So there's definitely a regulatory framework to all of this that needs to be borne in mind and, and operators will need to take account of it. Martin, thank you very much for that. To round off, I know, George, that you have been working with the industry to develop the Sustainable Rail Blueprint. Could you, although it's not yet been published, give us some hints as to what we're going to find inside it? Certainly. Thanks, Ant. Yeah, we've spent a good amount of time over the last 18 months consulting and developing what's known now as the Sustainable Rail Blueprint. And I'm really proud of how we've been able to pull together the comprehensive and credible, if you like, guidance for where our industry needs to head across a whole range of different topics. The environmental, both in terms of emissions as well as in natural environment terms, topics are included along with the social sustainability agenda, which is hugely important to maximising and showing what our industry is contributing to improving quality of life. So it's 11 topics. It's effectively, you know, the guide, as I've said, to what the industry needs to be thinking about and addressing in sustainability terms, and not just carbon. There's a whole host of things which I'm sure listeners will be recognising in their own businesses day to day. And it also talks to how we should be going about that and the common solutions that uh, span across a number of those topic areas. And the blueprint also includes route maps, which describe where we should be taking initiatives forward, some of which are already in train and some of which are already happening. And I'm pleased to say are, uh, are making good progress, but there's plenty more to do. And exactly the role of RSSB is to help steer the direction and also bring together for the Great British Railways, the transition team they're working with, GBR at the moment, the coherent 
as I say, direction for sustainability in rail, which is a key input into the long-term strategy for rail that we know is going to be coming along with the guiding mind. So yeah, we hope to be able to uh, publish that very soon with the approval of the department. Look forward to taking it forward with colleagues from across the industry. Thank you very much for that, George. And thank you, Martin. So as George has said, there is a sustainable rail blueprint coming soon, which has 11 topics of which decarbonisation is just one. So please keep listening to future episodes where we will be discussing more. Thank you for listening. And in the meantime, stay well and stay safe. Thank you.